Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is a show where we get to talk about how complicated the world of healthcare is and its own ecosystem. I liken it to a 30,000 piece puzzle. It's gotten bigger every single year. Maybe it's 40,000 or 300,000, who knows? But each one of our guests basically shares their piece of the puzzle and how they are helping me and all of our listeners kind of understand how to navigate this thing because it is big and complex and we're all trying to figure it out with each other's help. So I would like to take a minute to allow you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Joy. My name is Avery Haller and I am the executive director of strategy and partnerships with Health Gorilla. I've been in health tech for about two years and previous to that I was in public health and clinical trials. Yes. Can you tell me more a little bit about your journey? Like how did you end up where you are? Yeah, I would love to talk about my journey because it's a little bit circuitous. So I was actually in in college, I was an anthropology major. And so when you're an anthropology major, you kind of know that you're probably going to go to grad school because it's a great degree with with a lot of potential impacts. And and there are many directions you can take it. Is it also one of those where people say like, what are you going to do with that? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know what's (laughs) funny? The largest hire of anthropologists Microsoft. Really? They make really great UX researchers. Yeah, I believe that. Yep, absolutely. So, So I love anthropology. I think everyone should study anthropology. The study of human beings and how we work and how we think. And I've parlayed that really into every piece of my career. But but after I graduated undergrad, I knew I was going to go to grad school at some point. I started working in a healthcare clinic, originally in a chiropractic clinic, and then ended up going to get my master's in public health. In my public health education, I really focused on community health education. And that was fantastic. I also saw the pitfalls of where education isn't enough. And really, we need to be working on infrastructural change. I took kind of a sidestep into higher ed fundraising and did that for a little bit. And then stepped back into healthcare. I worked at Vanderbilt University Medical Center for a while in their Alzheimer's group. 
And then I went to Health Gorilla, where I'm now Executive Director of Strategy and Partnerships. Okay, so there's plenty to talk about on that side, but I want to talk about the infrastructural change that you have seen that is required in communities. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so I'm actually going to talk about data when I talk about infrastructural change, but I'll start with an easier example. So one of the most classic public health interventions is to put in sidewalks in neighborhoods. That sounds like a very small thing. It sounds like something that's like, why would that be related to health? Why would that be related to public health? But when we're talking about reducing traffic deaths, a sidewalk is an extremely effective barrier between a pedestrian and a car. And so now you have a whole bunch of preventable deaths that you've been able to save lives just by putting in that sidewalk. A sidewalk is fundamentally infrastructure. It's city infrastructure. And so often in public health, the things that make the most impact are these really large structural changes. For me, what I really saw is data in public health can be so powerful and it's not connected. All of us ended up feeling this during the pandemic. This was pre-pandemic, so we didn't really know it was coming. Those of us who were in public health knew that there was you know, so much data fragmentation. We wanted to put together the systems. We weren't quite there yet. And so I really wanted to work on that puzzle. Let's look at an infrastructural level at how we connect birth to death health data in one spot so that we can have powerful population level analytics and even individual precision preventative care. That's the dream, right? That is the dream. That is the dream. And and honestly, like the CDC has been hard at work at this. They have their North Star architecture around data, their data modernization initiative. I think the the pandemic really kind of made them need to work a little bit sideways for a while. Now they're very focused again on the data modernization. And, and for me, and this is both on the public health side, but also the point of care side, everywhere in healthcare, the birth to death health record is extraordinarily impactful when we're talking about actually being able to track not only population outcomes, but also my outcomes as a human being, whether I have a chronic illness or whether I'm just kind of trying to keep track of my own body. I want to have access to every single piece of my health record in a way, in a structured way that I can actually understand and in a structured way that can actually be used to create better products that meet me where I'm at. Right. You know, okay, so you mentioned the data modernization. What do you know about that that you can share with our listeners? I bet you are keeping your fingers closer to the pulse than more than many. Yeah. So so I'll share what I know. And I'm, and of course, like I defer to everyone at the CDC. They're obviously closer to this than I am. So the North Star architecture is the CDC trying to unite all of the disparate data systems that they ingest. This also kind of looks at the fact that the way that public health works, there's state and local governments that are often actually implementing the recommendations that CDC is putting out. And so the CDC needs all this data to come up to them, aggregate so they can do their the great population analytics work. But it's really the state and locals that are actually implementing the public health programs. And so in order for all of that to work well, there needs to be a, a single architecture of data exchange. The way this has worked up till now is very focused on disease-based spending. So you might have a specific grant for a diabetes program. You build everything up that diabetes pipeline, but it may not interact with your immunization pipeline, mm-hmm. might not interact with your vital records pipeline. And really what the CDC is trying to do and what TAFCA is trying to do, we can get to that, 
is really trying to unite this so that we have single patient record. I love the idea of that because I think of all the different places that I've lived over my lifetime and the different insurers that I have had. And if I was trying to build my own birth to midlife, let's say, story or record, like how disparate even that would be. Oh, absolutely. I don't even know where the heck I would go to try to get all of that in one place. So is that being created as we speak? Is that part of... What's happening? That's where, you know, companies like Health Gorilla have made a lot of progress is actually in the aggregation of that data. So between Commonwealth, Care Quality, eHealth Exchange, these large national networks, they've really done a good job of aggregating patient records for treatment purpose. What we are looking to do at Health Gorilla and, and just as a country right now with the implementation of TAFCA, which is the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, is we are trying to find a way to create secure network access to those records for more exchange purposes. And when I say exchange purposes, what I really mean is patients have a right for their data to follow them along the care continuum. Uh The care continuum does not stop start and stop when I'm next to a doctor in an office, which is what we kind of call treatment in the industry. The care continuum might be before I even come into the office. I might need a text nudge. I might need somebody to schedule me a Lyft or an Uber, Uber ride so I can actually get to the clinic. I might need a telemedicine visit. I might not know how to use that. All of that is before care even happens. Then care happens. Then we have all of the aftercare and closing care gaps. We have payment and we don't need patients to be in the middle of payment between a provider organization and a payer. It's confusing. It's confusing when you get these bills that haven't been negotiated yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really working towards as a country right now is having a better, like just, just honoring that patient right for your data to follow you. Can I ask a question? This is genuine. What if I didn't have insurance at all? Mm-hmm. Where would I go to access my record? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now there are a few patient-facing apps that you can work with. So Unblock Health is one. One Record is another one. There are quite a few others. So there are some patient-facing apps that help you aggregate records. They are looking at not just your claims data, but also clinical data that might be living in a health system somewhere. One of the major impediments to access though for patients is that you often have to know your portal credentials, which means you have to have portal credentials in the first place, which means both that your health system or clinic needs to be on an EHR that offers that. Right. And that you have to have gone through the steps to sign up for that. Not all patients want to go through those steps, have gone through those steps. One of the things we're working on with patient access through TAFCA is the IAL2 verification method. So single verification. And then once you've identified yourself and who you are through a selfie picture of your government ID, Again, some health equity issues there, but mm-hmm. but it's a little better than the portal credentials. Then we can ping all of the networks and all of these different places that we take care of to bring in all of your records. Okay, so follow-up question. Would that require, would it require the patient to start that process? Would those records be aggregated without the patient saying, I want my records aggregated? Exactly. So the patient consents at the time they consent to care. They do a HIPAA Mm -hmm. consent. That HIPAA consent allows the data to move for TPNO, treatment 
payment operations between covered entities. The aggregation services in between are BAA, they have a business associate agreement with the covered entities. So what that means is it's not necessarily going to get aggregated for no reason. People don't access data, PHI for no reason. But if there is a reason, like even if you're uninsured, there may be one clinic that wants to gather those records from another clinic or several other clinics. What they do is if their system, this new clinic that you're going to, needs to kind of press a button, if they're working with data aggregator, they can quote unquote press the button and then that then they're allowed to go out and get those records from the other clinics. And it can happen all in the background without the patient knowing, but the patient did consent. Gotcha. And so my other question is timing. How long would that take to aggregate all? I'm, I'm assuming you know everything, so I'm just going to pepper <laughs> some questions at you. But like, how long would it take to aggregate all of that information? So this is where we have actually made a lot of progress over the last decade. Originally, aggregating all that information would have been calling and faxing. Right. In many cases, it still is. But we have very far into essentially an instant access to that data and an instant access to the the CCD documents that can be accessed immediately by a provider. So it's really just a few seconds, can take up to a few minutes, but it's really just a few seconds. Okay, that's incredible. Is that what you guys get to do? Is that Yes, hard? that's what Health Girl gets to do. It's fantastic. Okay, so like, I feel like a lot of times when people, there's a ton of acronyms going around, and of course we're talking about TEFCA, and you're just like, okay, make sense of that for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because it's thousands of pages of regulation, and the lay people are likely not going to be reading that to understand it, but the important people who are helping to solve those problems are. So I'm like, okay, help me make sense of it more. If we had to describe TEFCA to somebody who didn't know what it was, how would you do so? You know what? I will. But first, let me tell you, Health Gorilla actually had our AI chatbot, Gordon LaGorilla, mm-hmm. write a children's book about this so that we could, you know, explain it to me like I'm five. But yeah, so let me tell you about what I, I feel TEFCA is. So again, we have made such progress in the private sector through national networks over the past 10, 15 years around exchanging for treatment purpose. Mm -hmm. Really incredible. The federal government is really stepping in at this point to say, you know, that's fantastic. You guys did a great job with treatment, but it turns out that patients have more need for their data to be portable than just treatment. So we're going to create a secure exchange network. We'll We'll take care of the security standards. We will set up the implementation. Health Gorilla did a privacy survey earlier this year on patients, and it turns out that they're 60% more likely more likely to trust exchange if the federal government's involved. Okay. So patients actually want this. They want the federal government oversight. So the federal government came in and said, we'll, we'll oversee the exchange. What that's going to do for all the players in the network is encourage you and allow you to exchange for more than just treatment. So you can exchange for patient access and feel secure that that patient is who they say they are. You can exchange for payment and operations, clinical data for payment and operations, and you for public health and benefits determination as well. And you don't have to have individual BAAs anymore with every single inner, with every single site that you work with you are all agreeing to one common agreement, and that's the CA in TAFCA. Oh, thank you for saying that. Okay, keep yeah. going. So basically what it does is it's a, it's primarily a legal framework in a lot of ways. There's also some technical framework, but, but it allows us to go from these one-to-one interfaces, individual BAAs, extremely human resource intensive ways of exchanging data, and move to one common agreement where we've all agreed to certain rules of the road, 
which allows us to exchange for more purposes. The other thing that it does is give a pathway for being compliant with both HIPAA and the information blocking rule. That's huge. Which is huge because it's very, it's getting to be a very confusing situation out there for a lot of healthcare sites. When you share too much information, you're in HIPAA breach. You don't share enough information. Information blocking breach. Exactly, exactly. So TEFCA is kind of that narrow path that the feds have given us to walk forward. That's amazing. Okay, so of TEFCA rules, the rules of the road and boundaries that have been set up, what are some of the more controversial ones or people, ones that are the hardest to abide by or Again, I'm assuming you know everything. Let me try to answer this question. So so I think the the most controversial thing, to be honest, is just the fact that TEFCA itself hasn't existed yet, which means that we are not used to exchanging for multiple purposes at scale without the individual BAAs. There's been honestly more excitement and momentum around this than even we expected. CDC and CMS are very involved with ONC around making TEFCA a reality, which is fantastic. But it's just a controversial concept. Right. And which is why it's taken so long. The original TAFCA was sort of put into motion in 2016 as Obama left office. And it took until January 1st, 2022 for the actual rule to be published. Oh, I did not know. I guess that wasn't top of mind for me. And that does make sense. And it has, so it's taken, the idea has been around. We're just now making it happen. How long do you think it's going to be until it's actually implemented? Do we have? The QHINs are, Mickey Tripathi, the head of the ONC, has been, you know, live on stage saying that there will be QHIN to QHIN exchange before the end of this year. So before the end of this calendar year. So in terms of going live before the end of this calendar year. Of course, TAFCA has some step-up functions. So there will be treatment and individual access purposes are really the first exchange that's going to take place with payment and operation shortly following. Okay. So there's there's kind of some step-up function there. Additionally, TAFCA is voluntary, at least at first. There are some incentives from CMS around participating, but it's voluntary. Voluntary for who? Voluntary for provider sites okay. and payers. Okay. There are many, many types of organizations that can participate in TEFCA. Primarily, providers and payers are probably the ones who are going to benefit the most. Additionally, there are some opportunities for pharma and life sciences that will become available and really, like one of the, the segments we don't want to forget is the patient. Uh-huh, of course. Patient access is such an important part of TEFCA. It's so important for patients to have access to their data. The piece we haven't figured out yet is having access to their data and correcting their record when necessary. Oh. Would love to see that happen because those, you know, incorrect information can really stay in for way too long sometimes. Yeah, and make it influence decisions that are made and actually have significant consequences. Exactly. So at some point, we need to get to the point where patients aren't just receiving their records, but they're also able to make corrections and really have that bi-directional conversation with the healthcare system. And if somebody was trying to understand how QHINs, the Quality Health Information Networks, fit into TEFCA, how would you make sense of that? Yeah. So TEFCA is a policy. It doesn't really do anything on its own. The QHINs are the actual implementation function of TEFCA. So what the QHINs do is actually do the exchange. 
And so there's something called the QT app, the QHIN technical framework. That's where all the kind of technical standards around this are. So the QHINs are basically the way to access the Tafka network. Okay. And so I am starting to build the picture. You are in charge of partnerships, right? And so does that mean that you are deciding what information is able or who is able to participate in exchanging information as part of the Q, the Health Corilla QHIN? I span two sides of the role. So I'm strategy and partner. I would say QHIN for the most part actually fits in more into my strategic side of the role. I wouldn't say that we at Health Gorilla are doing any gatekeeping around who exchanges. We're actually, we look at ourselves as the QHIN for everyone else. Right. So Epic will become a QHIN. They're primarily going to look at Epic customers. They, They have said that themselves. And then, you know, eHealth Exchange will become a QHIN. They already serve a lot of HIEs. They will probably continue to serve that market. Health Girl, we're very agnostic. So we will serve anyone. On the the partnership side of what I do, I'm actually really looking at those go-to-market partners who will help us amplify the message of Tafka, amplify the message of patient access, amplify message messages of data management and compliance. We have a lot of, you know, robust functions within our data platform in terms of data cleaning and getting everything into a single fire repository. And so I really look at those go-to-market partners. Lovely. Okay. Thank you for helping me put the picture and the pieces together. This has been really helpful. I also want to address social determinants of health and sort of the community aspect of all of what you do. And I don't know how, can we talk a little bit about how communities themselves, and I guess it's kind of tying to the population health of how they will benefit from this. Yeah, absolutely. So Tefka, as it is written right now, is very focused on clinical data exchange. And honestly, in the way that it's come up was very focused on the provider side, the payer side, the public health side, those have been kind of newer additions. They were always theoretically in there, but in terms of actual engagement, it's a little bit newer. So again, very excited about the CDC's involvement and figuring out how to implement TAFCA as well. For the SDOH data, it is not necessarily in the exchange of TAFCA, except that it is in some of the newer versions of USCDI. And as we move USCDI forward... So for people yeah. who don't know what USCDI oh, yes. is, yes, explain, because we're like, all right, we're, we're breaking it down. Yeah, US Core Data Set, USCDI. It's basically a standard set of data that is required for clinical data exchange or encouraged for clinical data exchange, depending on where you sit in the ecosystem. And my understanding of that is it's been a certain debt for data set for a long time. Your name, your address, your like all of the things about you, but they are starting to change what it would be included in that data set. Exactly. So that it captures additional pieces of information. Can we talk about that? There's version two, version three, version four. I think that I, I believe version three is the first one to include SDOH. Don't quote me on that because it may be V4. They're also coming out with V5 next year, I believe. And so really they're making yearly updates on this at this point. We, with a lot of community input around what should be in a patient's record. And when we talk about the kinds of information that we should be collecting, the STOH stuff is like, do you have access to food? Do you have housing? Do you have transportation? That sort of thing, correct? STOH is one of those hard topics because a lot of things can be a driver of health. Sure. And sometimes we only talk about the lacks and not the positives, but the reality is there are both drivers that are negative and drivers that are positive on health. So a lot of what the... USCDI has right now is those, you know, transportation access, food access, et cetera. When we look at, you know, holistic 
at SDOH Solutions, we're often looking beyond what's just in US CDI because that's a great start. And that's where, you know, ultimately Tafco will be involved in the SDOH data sharing is through that kind of US CDI, that data set. But there's a lot more that we can do beyond that. So what are the positive side? What are ones on the other side of the table that we haven't just talked about? Yeah, social support is a big one. So you may have someone who lacks access to transportation, but they have a ton of social support at home, you can do a very targeted intervention there where you say, hey, I know that you may not have access to transportation. Don't worry, I'll get you transportation. I also see that you have a ton of social support at home. Could we actually see if your brother can come with you to your next appointment so that we can strategize around picking up your meds and we can strategize around picking up, you know, some folks might be uncomfortable with that, but for a lot of folks, actually, they might love that encouragement to bring a family member or someone who can help. So social support. We also think about even things like, you know, food insecurity, of course, is a driver of health, but food security is also a driver of health. Right. And so we can't just think about people in this kind of one-dimensional way of, you know, what do you lack and how do I address? said, it's also what you need help with. What might be your superpowers right now that you have? What are the superpowers in your community? And how do we leverage those and close some of those smaller gaps so that you can get the care with the dignified care in the way that you deserve? I love all of that. And how do you, I mean, how would you document the superpowers of a community and leverage that data? That sounds also like next level. I think about SDOH data in three types. You have your demographic data as a zip code level data, things like the area deprivation index. Honestly, for the most part, that that is often recording lacks rather than positive. You also have patient-generated data, so things like the PREPARE study. Those questionnaires are almost all talking about what you lack. And then you also have the quote-unquote objective data or the public record data. So that's why Health Gorilla has done a partnership with LexisNexis around their SDOH risk scores, because it's actually individually identifiable data. So with that individually identifiable data, you can see things like social support, yes, transportation, educational attainment, but you can see it on both the positive and the negative side. You can also see things like family members who have been incarcerated, Obviously, you're not seeing the actual names or anything. It's just a a risk score based on that. And so it gives you a much fuller picture of what's happening. And what does that picture look like? Like, is it, yeah, how do do you, is that just, I mean, is it like analytics in terms of charts and graphs or is it a narrative story? With LexisNexis's in Health Girls partnership specifically, we have our risk scores embedded inside of the patient chart so that a care coordinator or a clinician can have a conversation with folks about what they might need. So we have a motivation risk score, readmission risk score, total cost risk, medication adherence. So they're very very particularly directed towards a certain intervention. Just a funny story. I asked them to run my risk scores when we were building. Yeah. When we were building the product. I would the do product. the same thing. I know. And I was expecting, I'm, I'm fairly, if you look at me and in more of a demographic level data, you would say, oh, she has nothing to worry about. However, when you lo- actually pull all of my identifiable data, I came out really high risk for motivation, which is a score around whether or not you complete your care plan. 
And the reason that I came out so high high risk is that my I had a lot of address instability. That's one of the You've measures. moved a lot. I've moved a lot. And the thing was, they were actually right. I often don't complete my care plans. I don't come to follow-up visits. I already moved or I'm seeing a different doctor. I forgot to pick up my prescription. I started my prescription three months late. And then when I was self-reflecting, I was like, wow, this is so powerful because you're not just looking at, you know, my zip code level data, which, which can be powerful in and of itself. That's great. Sure. But you're looking at what does Avery need? Not just what do people in my neighborhood need, but what do I need? Okay, now when we're talking about patients having the ability to access their information, would they also be able to access their risk scores? Like I I can totally see some value in like digging in about myself too, of just like, what does my data tell me about me for the same exact reasons? So this is really interesting. And this is where we need a lot of legal and policy innovation over the next like decade around SDOH specifically, because right now patients can't see their risk scores. Okay. And a lot of SDOH data is protected kind of away from the patient, or it might be publicly available so they can look at it, but they don't really understand it. And it's not really effectively being used. I would say we're at, we're in the the baby steps of patients understanding their SDOH. That's inc- I'm so excited to see that journey because I'm, I'm, you know, a decade from now, hopefully it will be in a position that somebody could do that. And I imagine if you can dig into each level of data with all the different risk scores, you could probably take some action on your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to the point about, you know, earlier we were saying patients need the ability to correct their record. One of the things with SDOH is it's it's very temporary often. So you may have, you might be unhoused right now, but hopefully if this is, if everything's working right, you will not be unhoused forever. And at some point you don't necessarily want that to follow you around. You don't want doctors every time you come into your visit to say, looks like you were unhoused. Are you, how's your housing? When maybe it's six years later and you've actually really been able to turn things around with the appropriate help and you really just want to move on with your life. Right. Avery, this has been so enlightening. I feel like I could just keep asking you questions like, tell me more, tell me more, (laughs) tell me more. Because you've made it in a way that's really digestible and I feel like a lot of these conversations are really heady and heavy. And so thank you. Oh, you're so welcome, Joy. And you can have me on again anytime you want. Fantastic. <laughs> so if people want to connect with you or follow your work and all that you are doing to make sense in the world of healthcare data, where would you direct them? I would say go to my LinkedIn, Avery Haller, A-V-E-R-Y-H-A-L-L-E-R. Give me a follow, connect with me, send me a message. I would love to connect. You are awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.